You are listening to sermon audio from Red Tree Church. For more information about our church or to find more sermon audio, visit redtreechurch.com. Good morning, Mr. Brown. Good morning. Good morning to everybody. How's everybody doing? No one's paying attention to me. Thank you very much, George. I appreciate that. Good morning. Have a seat, guys. We're going to go ahead and get started. How's everybody doing this morning? It is good to be with you. Um, my name is Craig. For those of you who don't know me, I think everybody does. Um, I'm a little bit of a mixed bag this morning. I'm, I'm unusually nervous. I'm not quite sure what's going on with that. So if you could pray for me while, while I'm up here this morning. Um, I don't know if it's too much coffee or the pancakes I had this morning, but... <laughs> I'm a little jittery. I'm a little nervous, um, as probably I should be bringing the Word of God, and uh, it's an honor and privilege to do so. Um, so I thank you for the honor to do that this morning. Uh, open up your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, uh, chapter 6. We're going to be in the first 13 chapters of, of that Gospel this morning. Um, and while you're, while you're getting there, if you need a Bible, by the way, there are Bibles at the end of the rows. We, uh, we encourage you to uh, to use your Bible, whether you turn one on or whether you flip the pages of one. And if you need a Bible, as we always say, feel free to take one of our house Bibles for you. It's important to us that the Word of God is in your hands. Um, uh, we've been out the last couple Sundays. I don't know if anybody's known that. But, but we've, we've been out the last couple Sundays. We were traveling. Uh, we went to Florida on a vacation, and then we went to Kansas City for a wedding. And uh, we, we rented a van to, to travel because none of our vehicles would have made it successfully there and back. So we rented a, rented a van. My wife found a great deal on a brand new 2018 um, Pacifica, Chrysler Pacifica. It had all the bells and whistles you could possibly want, and, and it became an idol of mine over the course of 10 days. <laughs> it had more stuff on it than I knew what to do with. But one of the things was a satellite radio. Some of you guys I know have probably have satellite radio, and, and satellite radio gives you the option to listen to. You can, you can listen to all of Bruce Springsteen or Fleetwood Mac or the Beatles or Elvis, all that. Or you can listen to genres of music. So you can listen to the 1940s decade or the 1950s, all the way up to the 1990s. Um, beyond that, I'm not sure there's much worth listening to. But <laughs> we spent 50 hours in that van. We put 3,100 miles on that. It was 300 miles on it when we got it. We put 3,100 miles on it, and we were in it for about 50 hours. And the, the deal is whoever drives gets to pick what they listen to. So, so when I drove, it was my wife and I driving, when I drove, I listened to the 70s. And when Kim drove, she listened to the 80s. Now, I have respect for the 80s, right? I went to college in the 80s, and I, 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 I dig those jams. But I think I have enough quantifiable evidence now, 50 hours, to say the, the decade of the 70s music is far superior than that of the 80s. Yeah. Or any other decade, for that matter. But I will say the 70s built on the foundation of the 50s and the 60s and probably the 40s. The 80s had some of that, but they were just trying to do their own thing. And I don't, I don't get that. And like I said, beyond that, 990s and on into the 2000s, there's no hope for you guys. So I just wanted to share that with you this morning. I thought that was important, something God put on my heart. But we're on this trip. Um, we, we left. Two weeks ago, we left on a, uh, early in the morning on a, a Saturday, I think it was, or Friday. And um, uh, the trip was bookended by, I'll say the last 14 days are bookended by two events. Um, the, the, the reason we went to Florida was my son Patrick had his last 
a big varsity baseball tournament uh, of his career. Uh, he's played baseball since he was a little guy. And uh, went down there for a tournament. That's the one he went to last year. If you recall, he got hit in the face, and we had to come back early. Just him and I went last year. This year, we all went as a family. And, uh, and so we went there, we went there for, for that as a family. Um, 25 teams. This team came in fourth place. They did very good. Had a great time. We left a, a day early. Uh, he stayed. We left a day early because we had to come back home and then to Kansas City to do a wedding uh, on a Sunday. That was the first event. The, the second event was yesterday, and, and that was a memorial funeral for my Uncle Raymond. My Uncle Raymond was 94 years old, and he passed away in March, and uh, they were only able to have... He donated his, his body donated his body to Wash U Medical, and uh, they just could have his, uh, his memorial yesterday. So uh, Uncle Ray had his funeral yesterday, and I went to that. Uh, my Uncle Ray was my dad's twin brother. So my dad died in 99, Uncle Ray just died this, this year, and they had five additional brothers. So there were seven McAlevey boys that grew up in Maplewood, Missouri, and, and my cousin, who so eloquently gave the eulogy at the end, and he said, um, he said, it's just, he realized now that, that all of those boys are gone, and the chapter has closed on the stories that, that, that they tell about the McAlevey boys in Maplewood and, and our grandparents, and that chapter is now closed forever. It's gone. And it makes you sad. Uh, he was my last connection to my dad, other than my siblings. Um, he was probably the closest to, to me as an uncle, and, and we weren't even that close, but we saw him the most because he was my dad's twin. And, uh, and, and, and those events um, cause a lot of reflection. Uh, from watching my son play since he was five to my two oldest are 18, they're graduating. Patrick and his daughter, or his daughter, his <laughs> You'll, you'll be there one day, and I can't wait for that day. His sister Sarah graduating, and Hannah's next in line. She'll be a freshman. So uh, there's a lot of reflection that has gone on in my heart over the last uh, 18, for the eight, last 18 years. And then with my, my Uncle Ray um, reflecting on the nostalgia of, of my life as, as I'm connected to, to my family and my mom and my dad. And I, of course, miss my mother uh, today. And those are the bookends, right, that have caused a lot of reflection. In the middle of all that was, was a time in Florida with, fam, with friends and family and, and great connections, great conversations. Uh, the news that comes across that David Comstock is in the hospital with a stress heart attack. We heard that while we were there, prayed for him. We heard that Nancy Hendricks had passed away. The Hendricks used to go to our church. Nancy was in her mid to late 50s. It was unexpected. So we heard that news. Um, and then we had to come home. We were here literally for three or four hours to sleep and then went to Kansas City to do a wedding on a Sunday a week ago today. So all of that was packed into um, to the last 14 days. And my life felt and feels a little bit like an episode of This Is Us, if you guys have seen that. Uh, but as a spectator, it's like I've watched elements of my life um, kind of flash before my eyes in various various ages of my life. It's been it's been really strange to experience that, and and I've been trying to decide, trying to discern what it is that God's teaching me in in these things. I'm not always um, super intuitive and in wanting to know that. Um, perhaps because I knew I was going to be speaking, I, I, maybe that was in the forefront of my mind, but. Um, I don't think so. I genuinely think that he was, he, was, uh, he was doing something in my heart over the last 14 days, um, and he was wanting me to see something. And what I've come to the conclusion of that he's showing me is this, and that's that 
every one of the people that we've encountered or we've observed, whether it's exuberant 18-year-old boys using the gifts that God has given them to play a game that they love that many of them won't play anymore, or the relationships and the celebration of covenant marriage that we got to, to, uh, to do, uh, or the end of, of life of two people. All of those people were fearfully and wonderfully made by God. It seems simple, sounds simple, but that's the thread. That, that's what God is showing me, because we don't always think about that. We always just kind of live our lives, and we interact with people really on a transactional basis a lot. And we don't consider that God has created them uniquely. He's knitted them together in their mother's womb, and they are fearfully and wonderfully made. And the other thing that God showed me is that all of them without fail place their faith in something, right? All of them without fail place their faith in something or someone, and and what they place that faith in will ultimately either save them, sustain them, and give them hope, or fail them miserably. Those are the things that that God has shown me. The common thread over the last 14 days isn't me. The common thread is, is God. That's what he's shown me. That's the common thread. And he's always the common thread. But it's easy to forget that, and I often do. So as we transition to our passage today, you may be thinking, well, of course, Craig, you're going to conveniently discern that God is showing you this thing about, about faith because you're about to preach on faith, right? And, and maybe, that's, maybe that's true. Again, I don't think that's the case. Um, but isn't that the most important thing? Our faith? Where we place our faith? Where we place our hope? Isn't that the most important thing? So I think God has been doing something in my heart as, as I've been preparing for this, for this sermon this morning. Because um, I think God has orchestrated the timing of this, right? He knew, I mean, I've been on the schedule for months. It's been, well, probably since the first of the year when the schedule came out. Um, um, we didn't know those people were going to pass away. I didn't know my uncle was going to die in his memorial. It was going to be yesterday. I didn't know any of that. So God orchestrated these things and has really been allowing me to, to, uh, to, to just to rest in, in the faith that he has gifted me with. So in our passage today in chapter 6 of the Gospel of Mark, um, let's get there. I think we see a glimpse of the heart of Jesus and how he processes this truth that he was sent to die and is making his way towards the cross. Sam pointed out our new graphic. Uh, we initially had, for the Gospel of Mark, we had um, Mark the beginning of the Gospel, and it was a nice, pretty, dark blue background with um, a kind of a nightfall and some guys in the boat, assuming they were the, the disciples in the boat, and that was our graphic, the beginning of the Gospel. Well, now, over the last couple of weeks, we've taken a turn uh, towards the cross. And I think we see in this passage this morning, uh, I think we see the heart of Jesus as he turns and makes his way towards the cross. We know that in the Garden of Gethsemane, right, that, that he sweat blood, right, and he begged God to take the cup of suffering away. I don't think it's too far-fetched to think that he did that other times in his life. Maybe daily, right? Maybe when he got away with the Lord, maybe that was a common theme of prayer that he knew was coming and that he was praying for, praying about, and when it got to that garden moment, it really got real for him, and he started to sweat blood. I don't think it's too far-fetched to think that. 
It became intenser the closest it, it came. But we see a, a shift, I think, in the heart of Jesus in our passage today. And I, I want to show that to you. And I pray that what, do, what God does in our hearts is I pray that, that He, in each one of us, that we will experience faith or a, a shift in our understanding of faith in light of the cross. That's, that's what I want us to get this morning. That we experience a shift in our hearts with our understanding of faith as it relates to the cross of Christ. So what I want to do is I want to read this passage for us this morning, and then I will pray after, and then there are a few things that I want us to, to talk about. So Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 13, this is what Mark says. He says, he went away from there, and they came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? And how are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. Verse 7, And he called the twelve and he began to send them out two by two. He gave them authority over unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until they depart from there, until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, then they will not listen to you when you leave. Shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick. And he healed them. And this is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And Holy Spirit, we need you and I need you this morning. I need you for clarity, Lord. I need you for passion that can come from salvation. We need you, Lord, for for a clear picture of what this passage is teaching us about faith. We need you to give us hearts that are obedient. Most of all, Lord, we need you. And we trust you and we know that you will be here and you are here this morning with us. Illuminate this passage, God. Illuminate this time. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So what I want to do first is uh, do a little bit of a recap uh, which is, is consistent with what we, what we do often uh, in these narratives in the gospel. But we have two stories here. We have Jesus and his disciples <clears throat> hanging around Capernaum, in west of the Sea of Galilee, and they've moved now, walked about, uh, or traveled about 20 miles southwest of where they were the last time uh, that, that we were together, or last week when, when Matt preached. But didn't Matt, by the way, do a wonderful job? I know you're cringing because I called you out, but Matt did a great job last week. If you didn't hear him preach, please go online. That is online um, and is available to you. But we have these two stories. They move down southwest um, to the town of Nazareth. 
As you recall, Nazareth is the place where Nathaniel, when he heard from his brother that Jesus was in town, was calling some disciples and Jesus was from Nazareth, um, he said, what, can anything good come from Nazareth? Of course, upon meeting Jesus, he falls down and he says, you are, you are the Lord, you are my God. We see a different scene as Jesus returns to Nazareth. So in this first scene, Jesus and his disciples, they, they roll into town. And it's important to know that, that Jesus isn't coming back for a homecoming. He's not, he's not coming in uh, to visit family and friends and have a home-cooked meal. He's coming as a rabbi with his disciples, as would happen and be common in those days, that a rabbi and his disciples would be traveling and teaching in the synagogues. And so that's what Jesus was doing, and that's what he does. He comes to the synagogue, it says, and he begins to teach on the Sabbath. And at first, their reaction is pretty consistent with what we've been reading in the Gospel of Mark. They're astonished at his teaching and his mighty works. But then they start to think, and they're like, wait a minute. And they start to get a little nasty, and they start to say, isn't this the carpenter? Isn't, isn't his mother Mary? Don't we know his brothers and his sisters? And see, by identifying him as a carpenter, they were, they were seeing him as 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 a simpleton, as a simple carpenter as opposed to a learned rabbi with disciples. They were reducing him down to something that he wasn't. And by calling him the son of his mother, that was a derogatory comment because typically you would not be referred to as that way in that day. You would be referred to as the son of your father, regardless of whether your father was, was dead or not. We don't know for sure, I don't think, whether Joseph has passed away or not. But, but the point is, you wouldn't be identified with your mother, you would be identified with your father. And so they were, they were very incredulous, very skeptical about him all of a sudden. And then Scripture says they took offense at him. It's a very strong word. It means stumbling block, or they were put off or repelled by him. It occurs eight times in the Gospel of Mark, that Greek word that means, that means offense. And in each time in Mark, it designates an obstruction that prevents someone to come to faith. Stumbling block, offense. They were offended by what he was teaching. And so Jesus, with the famous saying, he says, um, everywhere I go, I'm honored as a prophet, but here I, I come home and, and people that know me since childhood, um, there's so much unbelief here that even the Son of God can't do a miracle except for some, some small healings of the sick. And the text says that Jesus marveled at their unbelief. And we're going to camp out on that a little bit. But before we do, upon being amazed, Jesus just turns the page and he continues to teach elsewhere. And then the scene changes, and we come to verses 7 through 13, and we're not going to deal with those a ton today, but we will talk about how verses 1 through 6 point to that scene and how it influences it. But what happens in it is Jesus sends the 12 out on mission, and he does so in a very unique way, very un-Matthew 28-like. He, he gives them the authority to cast out demons. He tells them what to take and what not to take what to wear and what not to wear, and he sends them out to preach the gospel. And that's the end of the story, those two scenes. 
Now it's, it's important, as a bit of an aside, that the verses 7 through 12, uh, while they're in today's message, they're linked to the next two passages, and it's, it's in this Markin sandwich. If you guys remember the Markin sandwich that, that Sam has talked about before, that's, that's not what Jesus fed the 5,000 with. But it's this Markin sandwich. That was a joke, by the way. Um, this Markin sandwich, this, this passage, 7 through 12, is like the top layer where Jesus sends the disciples out. And then in verse 30, it says they come back. Those are the layer, those are the, the top and the bottom piece of bread. The meat is the story of John the Baptist being beheaded. And the Mark and sandwich, the whole point of that literary technique that's used in the Gospel of Mark is that center portion, that meat portion, uh, clarifies and points and helps explains those other two. And so that's what's going on. That's part of the reason I'm not going to spend a lot of time with it. I'll point to it. Probably Sam will point back to it a little bit next week. But, but I just wanted to let you guys know that because that is something to look for when you read through the Gospel of Mark is this literary technique called the Mark and Sandwich. As I said, my goal today is that, that in each of our hearts we would experience a shift in our understanding of faith as it relates to the cross of Christ or in light of the cross of Christ. Now there are many things that can be said about this passage. There's many tangents that we could go on and there's a lot of fruit to be gained from, from all of them. But I want to use verse 6 today as our controlling verse. Look, look with me at verse 6. It says, Jesus marveled because of their unbelief. He marveled because of their unbelief. And as I said, I think we get a glimpse into the heart of Jesus. I think we get a peek at his humanity. We're, we're privy at times to witness the humanity of Jesus. Like, like a few weeks ago when, when he was exhausted after a busy day of ministry and he's falling asleep on the boat while this severe storm is crashing around him. Dead tired. You've all experienced that before. Where you're so tired, nothing is going to wake you up. So to our Savior, he was human in that way. He, he ate and he slept. He had to go to the bathroom. He got tired. He got grumpy. He didn't sin in any of that. Now, let me draw a parenthesis real quick around this. Jesus, when I, say, when I say we get a glimpse of his humanity, we know Jesus is the God-man, right? And, and I don't want you to think that there's this, this interplay of, of divine and human or, or an inner conversation. Maybe there was, I don't know. But, but Jesus has two complete natures, fully human and fully divine, fully man and fully God. He is one person. Jesus is one person, fully divine and fully man. And that's all I'm going to say. You can look up hypostatic union on that and you can do some research. But I just wanted to say that in case there was something in your mind that was like, I don't get the humanity and the God part. I don't either. It's complicated. But that's what scripture teaches. There is one, two natures, but one person. Okay, end, end of parentheses. I think when we see Jesus marvel, I think we see his humanity. But it really doesn't matter. Whether he's marveling as a man or God, doesn't matter. The point is he's marveling, right? The point is he's amazed. Our Savior is amazed. There's only two times in Scripture where Jesus marvels. Only two times where he, he marvels. And both of them are concerning faith. All the things he sees, all the things he knows, and there's two times he marvels. The first one is at the centurion in Luke chapter 7. Right? You remember the story, his servant is dying, 
right? People tell him that Jesus is coming, and he sends a delegation to go out to ask Jesus to come and heal his servant. And he doesn't even wait for, for Jesus to get to his house. He sends some friends out to meet him to say to Jesus, hey, the centurion says, I'm not worthy of you, Jesus. Just say the word, and my servant's going to get healed. That's, that's the scene. And Jesus, when he heard this, Luke records the following. When he heard these things, he marveled at him. He was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd, there was a crowd that was following him, he said, I'll tell you, not even in Israel have I found, have, have I found such faith. Not even among the Jews. This is a, a Roman centurion, a Gentile. Not even among the Jews do I see this kind of faith. And he marveled. So that's the first time that Jesus marvels, and he marvels at the centurion's faith. And of course, the second time Jesus marvels is in our story today, but it's he marvels at the people of Nazareth, the Nazareans, I guess, um, Nazarethians, how would, how would you do that? Um, he marvels at their unbelief, at their lack of faith. Charles Spurgeon preached a sermon just on Mark 6.6, 6, and it was called The Sad Wonder, and he said about this passage or this verse, he said, that which seems to Jesus to be both in its presence and in its absence, a thing to be marveled at, ought to be a very great point of consideration with us. Should be frequently thought upon and always estimated at the highest rate. And so that's what I want to do today. I want us to look at faith today. It's difficult to define. Have you ever had anybody ask you what faith is? What do you tell them? A lot of times we say belief, right? That's the first thing that comes to mind. But how do you define faith? It's, it's difficult. And yet it's something that Jesus marveled at. You would, you would think it wouldn't be quite so hard to define since Jesus marvels at, at that, at faith and unbelief. A.W. Tozer says that in Scripture there's practically no effort to be made to define faith. Tozer says that. There's practically no effort in Scripture to define faith. He does say that um, Hebrews 11.1, 1, in his mind, is the closest. He says, now faith, Hebrews 11.1 1 says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. And he says, even that doesn't adequately define it. That really is more of a statement of faith in operation rather than faith in its essence. That, that verse assumes faith. Right? It shows the results of faith. Listen again. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. If you were to tell that to someone who asked you to define faith, they still probably wouldn't understand it right? To, as a definition, as the essence of faith. As just a, an exercise, I, I googled uh, faith sayings about faith and there's dozens and dozens of them on, online and here are just a few of them. Um, faith is spiritualized imagination. Faith is passionate intuition. These are all separate people. Faith is a stiffening process, a sort of mental starch. Faith is reason grown courageous. Faith is like radar that sees through fog. This is a good one. Faith is a bird that feels dawn breaking and sings while it's still dark. I think there's a kernel of truth in all of those, right? But faith is hard to pin down. It's like beauty. It's like defining beauty for somebody, right? Beauty is a hard thing to define, but you can describe it, right? You can describe a rose, 
right? A beautiful rose. You can describe that, to, but it's hard to define faith. It's hard to define beauty. And, and perhaps faith like beauty is better described than defined. The Apostle Paul says this in 1 Timothy 3. So our elder candidates have been charged, with, and all of the elders have been charged with memorizing 1 Timothy 3. It's the, the, the chapter on the um, qualifications for elders and deacons. And I was looking at this the other day, and it, it, uh, it dawned on me, Paul says this about faith. It says that, specifically in verse 9, it's talking about deacons, it says that they must hold the mystery of faith with a clear conscience. Even Paul says that faith is a mystery. Now, I take that to mean that you're never really going to figure what faith is. It's a mystery. It's a gift from God, for crying out loud. I mean, is it any wonder that it's hard to define? A gift from God? Yeah, that's going to be difficult for us to define. So I don't want to surpass or even attempt to surpass uh, A.W. Tozer or, or certainly the Apostle Paul or uh, Thomas Akempis and other church historians. Our church father said, I had rather exercise faith than know the definition of it. He'd rather exercise faith than know the definition of it. So it would just be foolish for me to try to define faith. And yet, the question still lingers, what is faith? What is faith? And there is, there is, uh, there's no shortage of commentaries and books and chapters in books. There's, a, there's a, an abundance of information. I've got more notes on this particular passage, I think, than I've ever had. And so it's been difficult to boil this down. So we need, we need the Spirit to speak clearly what He wants us to know this morning. How do we talk about faith in a way that's not simply another lecture, but creates that, that heart shift in light of the cross? My favorite definition, if we're going to pin a definition on faith, I'm going to go back to Tozer. He has a a chapter in his book, The Pursuit of God, where he calls faith, he defines faith like this. He says, and this is the chapter of, of the book, this is the name of it. He says, the gaze of the soul upon a saving God. That's how Tozer defines faith. It's the, the gaze of a soul upon a saving God. Faith is, says Tozer, the eyes of our soul fixed steadily and intently upon the mighty saves uh, upon the mighty works of our God. I thought that was a good way to define it. The gaze of a soul, the gaze of a soul upon a saving God. The gaze of a soul upon a saving God. Now, I would be remiss if I did not quote Ephesians two. We've already alluded to it. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is a gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. I want to make that abundantly clear, that we do not work for our faith. We do not work for our salvation. This is a gift from God. We respond, but we do not work for it. It is a gift. So let's unpack this gift a little bit. First thing I want to say about faith is that, that we do have a tendency to treat faith as an intellectual exercise. You can read that chapter in Tozer, and we did in our gospel community, and pick it apart and turn it over and talk about it and, and say all kinds of things about it, and it doesn't go from here to here, right? Because we can't, we can't make that happen. Only God can make that happen because it's a gift. But, but our tendency can be 
to treat faith as an intellectual exercise. One of my favorite pastor theologians is Jared Wilson. And he said recently, he said that things like justification, glorification, there were a couple of other words like that. He said they, they, they're merely academic so long as, as knowledge of your sin is merely academic. And I think we can say that about faith. Faith is merely academic if sin is merely academic. Right? Faith may be a mystery. Sin is no mystery. We can all define sin, right? We don't even have to to ask each other. We just know it, right? We can very easily describe that. When God opens our eyes so that we understand the depth of our human depravity and our brokenness, we are the ones to marvel and to wonder why God would choose to save us. We are the ones to marvel. When we come to grips with our brokenness and our inability to fix ourselves, our only response when that happens is to, is to fix our eyes on Christ and to collapse upon the saving work of Christ. We all feel the effects of sin. Sam mentioned it earlier. It's a broken world just today. More news about persecution in the church. And there's much brokenness in the world, and we all feel it, we all experience it. We know something is not right. It's the reality of what we live in. My personal story of salvation is one where the need for faith was divorced from the reality of sin. I've talked about this before, but not in, that, not in those terms. My story of faith is one where faith, or salvation, is one where the need for faith was divorced from the reality of my own sin. And I was reminded of that over the last 14 days. Right? I was reminded of, of faith and the role faith played in my life and how God used it and started to awaken me to faith just yesterday from a, a very early age. Many of you know this already. I've already told this before. Um, from a very early age, I knew I needed faith. I was 10, 11 years old. I grew up in the Catholic Church. And I, had, I just knew that I needed faith. And I would pray... Every Sunday in church and other, when I was in my bed with my stuffed animals, I remember this clearly, I, I would pray that God would increase my faith. Right? There's a specific point in a Catholic Mass that I would pray that prayer. I don't remember if I was taught to pray it then or not. Um, I don't think I was. And I remembered that moment yesterday. At that moment in the Mass, I remembered being a boy, praying to God to increase my faith. And I prayed that prayer often. Even as a young adult, into my adult years, I prayed that often. I knew enough that I didn't have faith and I needed it. What I did not understand was my sin. That's what I didn't understand. Specifically my own personal sin. I knew that I sinned. It's not that I didn't sin. It wasn't that I was perfect. But my sins were trivial. Right? I, wouldn't, I would be sorry that I didn't take the trash out. Right? Sorry that I, I disrespected my parents. Sorry for cursing. And it's not that those aren't real. Those grieved the heart of our God. There's no doubt about that. But what I failed to grasp was the, the core problem that caused those sins was me. It was in me. It was my sin problem that caused those sins to happen. I was willfully sinning because of the sin problem.
problem. I was reminded of sin while we were in Florida. Not that I did a bunch of sinning in Florida, by the way. I'm sure I did. But, but I was reminded of it. <clears throat> so we, we, uh, we got in late on Saturday night, and <clears throat> to be honest, I wasn't anticipating or looking to go to church on Sunday. I was going to take a little break. Um, just, just wasn't really on my radar, right? Because I knew we were going to get in late. I just didn't do any research. We got there Saturday night. And we stayed in a house with another couple, a uh, good Christian family. They go to a church out here, wonderful friends of ours. And John tells me, he says, hey, he goes, um, I don't know what your plans are tomorrow, but there's a church really close by that I went to last year. It's a good, solid church. We're going to go. There's a 9 o'clock and an 11. We're going to go to the 11. Do you want to go? Well, I said yes. And so we went at 11. Now, now, whenever we visit churches, we were on vacation last year and we visited a church that met in a school, and whenever we visit any church, my antenna is up and I'm, my critical spirit is already out. And we pull into the parking lot, I'm already, look, this isn't at a school, this was in a building, but I'm already looking at things that like, could translate to what we do here or couldn't, and they've got a nice tent outside with a welcome table, I thought we can do that, and we go inside, they've got a nice bar with coffee, people, Sam, people were serving coffee. You didn't have to serve yourself with real cream, a variety of cream, right? Sweet, non-sweet, whatever you wanted. Vanilla, French vanilla, caramel, they had all that. It was awesome. So I'm looking at all this stuff. We go into the auditorium. It's a, it's a nice, it's a little bigger than this. Um, nice auditorium. Tony, Jim, Jeff, you guys, I feel your pain now. The sound was amazing. It was perfectly balanced. And I know nothing about sound, but, but it's, it was just perfect. It sounded great. It wasn't too loud. It was, it was just, it was wonderful. All these things are rolling through my head, right? I, I get to see me up on stage. The guy comes out and does the welcome. And he says, he sees one of these guys. He goes, he goes, uh, um, he goes, how you doing? And nobody says anything. He's like, come on, that's not very good. How you doing? And I, I will never say that again because it looks so cheesy when you're sitting on the other end of it. I will never, I will never say that again. But, amen. Who said amen? Who was that? I'm going to say it just for you. Then they started preaching. And they were in a little mini-series, if you can imagine. They were in a mini-series of Romans. But they were, they were starting in Romans 12. So they were, they were in the instruction part of Romans. But they did a quick one message, about 40, 50 minutes of, of preaching on Romans 3 before they got to Romans 12 the following week. And I was transported in time back to the late 90s, sitting under the preaching at Hanley Road Baptist Church in Clayton under the, the teaching of Slade Johnson, who's a godly man who led me to Jesus under his preaching of Romans. For seven years, the man preached out of Romans. And I came in around Romans 3, and I was transported while I was in Florida to when I was back in the 90s sitting under the preaching and being aware for the first time that my sin was real. I was a sinner. Sins were not something that I did that made me a sinner. It was that I was a sinner to the core that made me sin. My sins were reflections of my dark heart. And it was those sins, I remember thinking clearly those days, that, that my sin nailed Jesus to the cross. It wasn't, it wasn't the idea of my sins. It was my sin that nailed him to the cross. Romans 3 told me that no one is righteous, that no one understands, no one seeks God, that all have turned aside and together they have become worse, worthless. No one does good, not even one. 
that's pretty thorough. And I was counting myself among them for the first time. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Greek word all there means all. All. Everybody. Very clear. Romans 3 also told me, though, but now, another big but in the Bible, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. We don't work for our salvation. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the the righteousness of God through faith in Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For the very first time I saw my reflection in the nail heads that nailed Jesus' feet and hands to the cross in the late 90s, early 2000s. First time I started to see that through the preaching of the gospel in the book of Romans and a knowledge of sin led me to understand that God was indeed giving me saving faith. But the sin came first. The understanding of sin came first. The faith that I had prayed for since I was a boy came to me some 20 plus years later. He was opening my eyes quite literally to the truths of the gospel. He was giving me an understanding heart. But it wasn't until the Holy Spirit shined the light on my brokenness that I understood and confessed to God that I was a sinner. And he opened my eyes to this beautiful faith. And that's an ongoing process. Confession of sin marks the believer. Evidence of a believing church. A church that is gospel fluent is a church that regularly confesses our sin to one another as well as to God. Some of you this morning are light years ahead of where I was. Right? You get the sin part, but you struggle with the faith part. You understand that you're sinners. Realize this. The Holy Spirit is at work in you this morning. If you realize that that you're broken and that you're a sinner, before you can truly understand faith, you have to have that light shined on your sinful and darkened heart. And when that happens, God beckons you to come to Him and to repent and to believe the saving work of Jesus. If that's you, there's a reason you're here. As I was sitting those years under the book of Romans, hearing preached the preached word of God, hearing that I was a sinner, it was like those messages were directly to me. And God was in my heart, stirring these things up. And perhaps God is doing that same thing to you today. If there's something in the message of the gospel that just makes sense to you, but you can't put your finger on it, and you're waiting until you have it all figured out. That, that was me. I have news. You're not going to figure it out. You're not going to figure out faith. Until God shows you your sin and you confess it, He is going to give you the gift of faith. I'm, I'm not suggesting it's quite so literal. Literal. Liner, literal. Literal. You know what I'm saying? Literal. Liner. Yeah, that. It's complex. It's a mystery, Right? So it's not A to B to C to D. But, but that's what happens in your heart. And so if that's you this morning, I say repent and believe the gospel. Don't wait. Don't wait. Mark says that the kingdom of God is at hand. 
There's an urgency to Mark's message. Repent and believe the gospel. There's a mystery to our faith. And if you're waiting to have that faith mystery figured out, it's not going to come. There's never going to be the perfect alignment where you're like, I'm now ready. It is a submission to the the Lordship of Jesus. Every day. day. Look and see your reflection in the nail heads that nailed Jesus' hands and feet to the cross. See your reflection in those nail heads. For some of you today, you need to understand that the brokenness you experience is sin. You, you think you have faith, but you've never dealt with your sin. Let, let go of your hard heart. Let go of the pride that keeps you from pursuing God. You act like you have faith, and to an outsider, perhaps even to an insider perspective, it looks like you have faith. It looks like you love Jesus, but there's no submission to him. You say the right things, you do the right things, perhaps you serve, you can even articulate the gospel, but you don't have saving faith. You must realize your morality is not going to save you. Your hope is in something else. That's why life is so incredibly frustrating. You've successfully convinced people that you're a Christian, but your heart is hard. Let go of the pride that keeps you from pursuing God and repent and believe the gospel. Do not wait. There's a mystery to your faith. And if you're waiting to figure that mystery out, I'm here to tell you, you never will. There is an urgency to Mark's message. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Faith is a response. And some of you need to respond. Some of you need to respond. When I was, again, sitting under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, Pastor Johnson would say, have you done business with God? I know that sounds cheesy, but it penetrated my heart. Have I done the work of confessing my sin? As he broke me, I needed to respond. And that respond wasn't to leap to say I have faith. That response was to get on my face and confess my sins to a holy God. And the flourishing of faith has been a beautiful thing. So that's the first thing we need to see this morning. Faith is not an intellectual exercise. If we treat it as such, we're going to miss the point. Just as the reality of our sin is not a mere intellectual exercise, neither is our faith. It's a response. The second thing that I want us to understand this morning about faith is that it's by faith that we live our lives and by faith that our hope is sustained. Once faith moves from the theoretical to the practical and it becomes saving faith, it's not simply a one-time thing that happens. Means of your salvation and then you're done. Tozer, you remember, says it's the gaze of the soul upon a saving God. Gazes are constant, right? Gazes are constant and consistent. When God saves us and we submit to Christ as our Savior, do our present problems go away? No, they don't. We're left 
here in a sinful, in a broken world. We're in this story of brokenness. Stuff happens. People sin against us. People bomb churches. Ugliness happens. Living by faith means that we change the narrative and we become better storytellers. That's what living by faith means. We change the narrative and we tell a better story. We become students of the Word and we're able to speak the Gospel into one another's lives as well as into the lives of unbelievers. Perhaps even more importantly, Telling a better story, changing the narrative in an unbeliever's life is going to draw them in. Instead of just laughing at the same jokes or telling them they're a sinner, let's enter into their story and describe to them how God intended this whole thing to work and lovingly shepherd them through that process. Living by faith means that we're not to hide or moan or groan and be joyless. In fact, faith unites us with Christ. That's Ephesians 2.10. So the results of ongoing faith cannot be lifeless. Both in our good works that are a byproduct of both are, are both in our... That makes no sense what I have written down here. But our works don't save us, suffice it to say. But they're a result of our faith, Right? Our good works are a result of our faith. Living by faith means we do not forget our treasure is where? In heaven. Our treasure is in heaven. Do not cling to the treasures of this earth that will quickly become dust. I have news. Everything, and I mean everything, that you possess here in this life is going to rust and rot and turn to dust and get scooped away and be blown away with the wind. Everything you have. Everything. Matt, can I share your story real quick of the car? Matt shared a story. Matt Kreutzer, he shared a story a few years ago. Somebody broke into his car, and he was mad at the guy. I think, were you mad at the guy? He was mad at the guy that broke in because he's like, you idiot, my treasure's in heaven. That is not my treasure. That's changing the narrative. That's changing the narrative. I mean, it's, it's a funny story, but that's, exa- that's why Matt's an elder candidate, by the way. That's the heart we should have, right? How often when our, my car broke down last summer when we were on our way to Virginia, which is why we rented a van, um, that, wasn't, that, was, that was my treasure because I wasn't happy. Changing the narrative is seeing that as a blessing and understanding that's fleeting, that's going away, right? Waiting for the opportunities then for, for trucks to come by and pick us up and bless us, which they did, and, and have great conversations, our treasure in his heaven. Don't is in heaven. Don't cling to the treasures of this world. What happens? What happens is this when we fix our eyes on the things of this world and they go wrong, and they will go wrong. When our cars break, when our roofs leak, when our basements leak, when relationships go sideways, when when we get frustrated and angry, and we exhibit that behavior as people who call themselves Christians and believers in Jesus Christ, we look like everybody else. We look like, every, we look like our next-door neighbor who is so far from God, and yet we act just like them. What does that say about our faith? What does that say about the power of the gospel? We look anything but distinct, right? We look like the world. 
2 Corinthians 5, 7 says, we walk by faith, not by sight. Living by faith means we spend considerable time pondering the reality of heaven, of what's to come. When was the last time we did that? I'm guilty. I don't do that often enough. I don't do it often. It's a passing thought. It's a passing glance, glance, usually when I read of Scripture. Theologian Art Azurdia says this, if you are absolutely gripped by the coming realities that have been promised to you by God, then how you live your life in the present will be radically different than if you did not possess that certainty. This is what faith is, my friends, he says. Positive certainty expressed in action. Authentic faith is not merely believing in God, it's believing God. It's believing the promises of God. I think many of us believe in God, we don't believe God, because we're not living like we believe God. And our next door neighbors are looking at us and they're like, he says he's a believer and he's doing and saying and acting this way? Take your gospel somewhere else. We're not displaying the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you believe in God or do you believe God? There is no salvation, no transformation apart from knowing God. John 17, 3, this is eternal life that they know you are the only true God and Jesus Christ, you, who, who you have sent. If we're not believing God, then we're believing something else. If we're not believing the gospel, we're believing something, we're believing a lie, which sounds a lot like Adam and Eve, does it not? They believed the lie, and their fruit was rotten. If you'll permit me an example. Again, Florida. A lot of things happen in Florida. And we're really getting out of time here. I'll be brief, but I think this is helpful. We were, we were in Kansas City, we were walking along the plaza, if you guys have been to Kansas City in the plaza, and it was my wife and my two daughters, and Sarah came up with a, a great question, a very thought-provoking question that uh, I didn't have an answer for, and it frustrated me that I didn't have an answer. And so we were talking, we were dialoguing, and, and, and I thought we were, and she always, I asked permission to share this. She said, I'm done with this conversation. And I'm like, well, why? She said, because you're pushy. I think she said, because you're angry. She said, it's because I, she said, she said, I'm pushy. Doesn't, doesn't matter. I was either pushy or angry. I was probably both. And that hurt me. And so I did what I do best of anybody here, I'm sure, is I threw myself a pity party. So we spent the next hour walking around the plaza and I said nothing. And she said nothing. And we're just walking, and Hannah and Kim are talking, and we, we're going to eat. So we go to a restaurant, we sit there. She sits right next to me for the next 45 minutes. We don't say a word. It's like a standoff. I was believing a lie because I was prideful. I wanted so desperately to be the dad theologian that could answer this question, and she would melt at my feet and say, Father, how wonderful you are. That's the truth. That's the truth. I felt that anxiety in my heart. Man, I don't have the answer for this. I completely missed an opportunity for worship in that moment. She asked a perfectly valid question that I don't have an answer for. And we could have just, it could have been a conversation about how beautiful God is. And the gift that he, it had to do with our minds. 
And I missed that opportunity because my faith was in me and my, in my ability to answer that question. I wanted to look good and I couldn't do it. So I came across as pushy and angry and I sulked. Well, he gave you the opportunity to do what you just did. Amen. We repent, right? I have far too many opportunities for that. That's the only thing. But it's a good thing because I want our children to see me repent as well. And he's given me that opportunity. I did not have that example a lot in my life. Lastly, living by faith means that your, your behavior reveals your beliefs. Truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. What does generosity look like in your life? Right? What, what does, what does um, your time and your talents and your treasures look like when it comes to generosity? Do you, do you hold and do you hoard? Uh, Tim Keller titled his book, Prodigal God, or Spendthrift God, right? It's, it's this spendthrift God. He's the pro, we think of the prodigal son because he blew the fortune. Well, Jesus, uh, God was a spendthrift God because he spent everything on us. He spent his son, Jesus Christ. Jeff Vanderstelt in Gospel Fluency says, You worship either a sovereign, powerful God or an ineffectual, weak God. Your life reveals your faith in the God you worship because what you believe shows up in your behaviors. The response of faith looks like something believer, I would encourage you to examine your life and do the hard work. Now let me, let me give an encouragement. Do you know you can actually gain great assurance and confidence in your faith? Do you know that? You guys realize that? You can gain confidence and assurance in your faith. You can grow in faith. Who wants to grow in their faith? I'll assume those of you that didn't put your hand up Put your hands up in your heart. Here's how you can grow in your faith. Again, 1 Timothy 3. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. What's the key there to growing in your faith? How do we gain gain great confidence in our faith? By serving well. By serving well. That's how we gain confidence in our faith. Now, now I, I was a little, I played dirty pool with you there a little bit. I used the NIV version. The ESV version, that passage is about deacons. Deacons serve well. They gain confidence well by serving well. That's a deacon. But here's the thing, we're all deacons, right? We're all deacons because the word deacon means servant. So that passage applies to every one of us including an elder and a pastor as well as a deacon, as well as anybody who's a believer, right? We are all servants because that's the heart of our Savior is a servant. As I close out, we are obsessed. We are obsessed with and impressed by glitz, glamour, money, prestige, influence. We make judgments based on where we live, what high school we went to, what kind of car we drive, what our job is, who our family is. Simple living, modest means, lack of stuff is often regarded as uneducated and not worthy of, not worth noticing and as a result can be easily dismissed. The people of Nazareth failed to recognize Jesus for who he is, the Messiah. The one group of people that you might think would be looking for him 
anticipating his return, they missed it. Wouldn't they have been aware of Jesus' pedigree? All they need to do is ask Mary. She pondered all those things in her heart. All they would have needed to do is ask Mary. You would think that they would have known, but they missed it, and Jesus was amazed at their lack of faith. Instead, it was the centurion, the one most unlikely to amaze Jesus, a Gentile, a pagan upbringing, a Roman, a man of war, not the resume that you'd expect from someone who who would exhibit faith that even surpassed those of Israel. And yet, Jesus was amazed at this faith. He was a miracle of God's grace. He was a first fruit. He was a foreshadow, a living illustration of God's saving power that has now come to you and me if we believe and trust in Jesus Christ. I began this morning by saying that we see a major shift, or a shift anyway, in the heart of Jesus. He came to die. He knew that. Right? When, when, when he saw the lack of faith in the people of Nazareth, he didn't get mad, he didn't get pushy, he didn't get angry, he didn't throw a pity party, he didn't turn over tables, he didn't say, do you know who I am? He didn't even try to convince them. The text does not say that. What did he do? He marveled. He was amazed. Then he went about his business. Teaching. And I can see him just shaking in his head and thinking, man, This just got real. I'm going to the cross. The page has been turned. We are now going towards the cross. I think we see a shift in the heart of Jesus where he realizes this, probably not for the first time. The very next thing we see him do is he sends out the twelve to proclaim the gospel. Jesus had carefully prepared his disciples for his mission, For this mission, he called them with the promise that I will make you fishers of men. And now he was sending them to do just that. Beloved, what about you? What about your faith? Is your faith in one who saves, equips, and sends? Or is your faith in the here and the now? Because there's something bigger and better than whatever is frustrating you and causing you anxiety right now. But there's also something bigger and better than whatever's capturing your affections right now in this life. Because there are things that capture our attention that are weights on our ankles. Because if we're real, we all got pretty sweet lives. We don't live in the persecuted church yet. That day may be coming. But we don't live in it now. There's something bigger. There's something better. There's someone bigger. His name is Jesus Christ. And His gospel has the power to save. And today, Jesus beckons to repent and to believe the gospel. Let's pray. Jesus, we are thankful. And that's not even an adequate word. It's poultry compared to what we really should be. We should be weeping and falling on our faces right now for the salvation that you purchased for us, God. God, I pray that this message was way too long. That was way too long, but I trust that you have purpose in it. I pray that what has been said, Lord, falls on my own heart.
and stirs my own heart, Lord, and my affections, Lord, to love you deeper and to be obedient in faith. Lord, I pray that your Spirit draws each and every one of us to you, perhaps some in a saving way for the first time. And we can rejoice as a church as the angels sing hallelujah and we can sing along with them as you save souls. Jesus, we love you and we trust you. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Folks, we have a time to respond uh, over the next few minutes. We're going to have some prayer partners, the Tennells and the Packards. I'll be up here if you want to pray or confess or talk about any of this or anything else. Um, please come up. We'll spend uh, just a few minutes. They'll be, we'll be scattered about the room. But think about what we've just heard. Let the gospel reach into your heart and respond to what God is doing. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Red Tree Church. Visit redtreechurch.com for more information.